What is population health? Why do some people become sick while others don't? How do we study and what can we do to eliminate health inequities? Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more. Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago. Michael Esposito from the University of Michigan. I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis. Twice a month as we discuss cutting edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations and IAPHS podcast. As we started before on the pod, everything that we do and care about in population health is political whether covering your face during the pandemic or developing policies that create equitable access to policy, to access to healthcare and all the products and determinants of health are all politicized. Um, as we consider population level policies and practices capable and in many cases, thinking about radical changes that are needed to improve the population health, especially among vulnerable populations of people around the United States and around the globe, Oftentimes, our biggest barrier is not funding, it's political will. And so as a population health organization, we must be cognizant of politics, political ideology, and how policy works in order to, for our work to ultimately be feasible and or effective. And it seems right now that our political climate is highly toxic at the moment with deep, deep divides, perhaps deeper than any of us ever realized. And as demonstrated recently on January 6th, Despite all the money we spend on defense, the seat of our very democracy was threatened with insurgents fueled by populism, fear, grievance, and dis disinformation. It's enough to make any of us feel incredibly demoralized. However, we are fortunate to have an actual political scientist with us here today, Dr. Nadia Brown, who will be joining us to discuss the current political moment. Dr. Brown is an associate professor of political science and African American studies at Purdue University. Her work largely focuses, focuses on intersectionality and Black women's politics. Dr. Brown, thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you for having me. It's definitely a thrill to be able to talk with non-political scientists, which is something, unfortunately, I don't uh, get to do that often. Well, we're happy to create that opportunity, and it's a pleasure for us to talk to someone who is outside of these varied fields of population health, public health, sociology, demography, et cetera. So thanks again for joining us. Sure. Um, so in one of your books, Sisters in the State House, um, as well as one of your current projects that we'll talk about a little bit later, you talk about the role of black women in politics, especially at the state house level. And so much of our political system is dictated at what happens at that local level. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about some of the the politicians that you've interviewed and had a chance to, to follow over the years. And forgive me if I'm asking some really basic questions, but what does it take to, to run for office? And in your experience, um, why do people run for office? Uh, who do they listen to? And what, where do they get their, their information that forms their policy positions? Sure. So in order to run for office, ideally people have a 
commitment to something bigger than themselves, whether it's an ideology, whether it's a commitment to a set of policies or a worldview. Um, it's typically someone who is trying to influence government and governance in a way that they think the country or the district or school board should go in. Um, and what it takes to run, unfortunately, is money, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we know that uh, those from marginalized backgrounds have a much more difficult time getting money to, mm -hmm. to run for office, but it's not the only thing. You also need a group of people that believe in you and believe in your message. And um, oftentimes we know that for marginalized communities, that's what sets people over the edge is a group of dedicated followers or people that share similar beliefs that are willing to um, support this candidacy, whether it's through finances, through grassroots activism, getting out, knocking on doors, telling friends, um, and most importantly, showing up to vote. Most local elections are won by such slim margins mm -hmm. and even some congressional races, right? Um, mm -hmm. um, like for example, Shirley Chisholm won her first uh, election, the historic election with fewer than 800 votes. Yeah. So, um, so these things really matter to getting people to get out. And so once people are elected, they should be beholden to their constituency. And there is a debate within political science literature whether um, constituents put people in office so that they can do exactly what the constituents want them to do, or if the constituencies are okay with this group of people that they've elected kind of going off the riff and um, using their best judgment to, uh, to make a political decision. And as we saw um, in this fallout of the impeachment uh, here, the second, Donald Trump's second impeachment hearing that we uh, saw last week, that did not bode well for some of the seven uh, Republicans who decided to um, say that Donald Trump was guilty of insurrection. And we saw that their local Republican parties have voted to censure them. So um, kind of a big, I guess, broad response to the question and feel free to ask something to follow up if I didn't exactly, uh, answer correctly. That's perfect. Um, yeah, this is, I, I'm thinking about, this is not politics at all, but I am, um, I sit on the board for my HOA association mm -hmm. and this issue of do we, are we leaders who work in the best interest, interest of our constituents and see the forest for the trees? Or do we have to like listen to our constituents and every kind of complaint that they have? And I feel like in this political moment where everything is so politicized and we are supposed to be trusting our leaders to see the forest and the trees and to work in our best interest, I think there's just so much swirl that people listen to that it's really challenging to have these kind of brave political leaders who step into the spaces and make some hard decisions when and go against the riffraff, you know, or their constituents who disagree. Like it's it's such a challenging political moment. Um, yeah, you're, you're exactly think. right. And I, yeah. I love the, uh, the the term, right, go against the swirl. I think I'll be borrowing that. Mm. Um, and it's so, Absolutely. <laughs> it, it's, this is an even more difficult time to do this because of the amount of disinformation mm -hmm. and Americans can't agree on the facts. So usually right now, right in this political, this political moment, and usually what we've seen is that people disagree on policy prescriptions or they disagree on ideologies or worldview, but they um, are informed by the same set of information. Mm. What we have now is completely different, right? Um, some groups have different facts that they call alternate facts. 
Mm. And my other people are working with science and um, mm -hmm. and listening to experts to determine the best outcomes for governing and um, and politics. So when you have this juncture of politicians trying to go against the swirl, it's not um, you know it's it's not even the same thing as even at a polarized time or the beginning of our polarization in the 1980s. Mm. Right, this is something that's much, much deeper because Americans don't look at the same circumstances, don't look at the same um, information and think, yes, we know this to be unequivocally true. However, we disagree on the best course of action to tackle this issue or a problem. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, bringing this back to, to the news, this is what we saw happen just yesterday, right? Uh, Governor mm -hmm. Abbott, Abbott mm -hmm. in Texas says that he understands that one of the reasons why Texas is having such a hard time responding to the energy crisis or people that are still without, um, without electricity is because almost all electricity um, national resources in the state have gone off grid. But he then goes on Fox News later on and then blames this on um, renewable sources and green energy. Although he had said previously, right, not even 30 minutes earlier, that both right, um, fossil fuels and wind and solar energy had all also gone off. But he blames this on um, renewable energy on Fox News because he's speaking to a particular demographic that wants to hear mm -hmm. something. And when pol political leaders don't have the moral courage or the fortitude to be able to speak truth to power and to give mm -hmm. constituents um, the raw truth and the facts, we're going to continue to see, I think, what's happening um, in this country where people are polarized and not because they have different policy stances, but because they're just given different amount of facts and information from politicians. Yeah, yeah, kind of Go ahead. Kind of going off of that a little bit more, uh, like what is the, like what is, what's the state of like kind of, I don't know if you call it political theory, but um, uh, kind of like thinking about voting behavior and political like behavior. Uh, among uh, kind of political scientists right now? Like, are you all like, okay, we got to throw everything away. Right? Like <laughs> the reasons that pe like people's, the determinants of people's voting behavior is completely different than we thought in this moment. And like why people like politicians like kind of take actions that they do. Or is this kind of something that was like, oh no, if you would have asked us and if you would have read our theories, you would have seen this coming like 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so for people like me in American politics, right, who, who took my major field exams in American politics, came out as an American politics expert, mm -hmm. you know, we have to throw all our shit away. <laughs> <laughs> but those who study comparative politics were like, uh, yeah, okay. I can tell you a little bit about um, regimes that go between democracy and authoritarian, and authoritarian government. Uh. And then the rest of us are like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we are like the rest of the world. Oh, um, because oh we we just so deeply believed in American exceptionalism sure. and mm -hmm. thought that the the populist ways of um, developing countries would not come to America. Mm. I'm in I'm in the process of I just joined a, a team of authors who have revised an American politics textbook to like to teach undergrads, mm -hmm. and we start off with the premise like are we like we're approaching democracy we are mm -hmm. not a democracy yeah. right? for mm -hmm. all of the reasons why I think um, you know many people know but this um, right this 2020 election really 
put fissures in the last four years too, right? Have put fissures in what we know about democracy and to make this analysis, even at the simplistic lens for undergrads, we really did have to draw from comparatives, comparativists who are studying um, how democracy looks and works and operates in other kinds of countries. And it's a big different take, right? Because how mostly we've been teaching undergraduates and even kind of purporting these theories to ourselves are that um, America is like we're working towards a democracy. We might have had some glitches there, you know, when we didn't right. enfranchise women, when we had slavery, right? When, um, you know, we didn't have laws that protected people that were differently abled or children. But now we're doing so much better. And right, aren't you glad you live in 2020? And so what we're showing is that no, democracies can backslide. And the United States fits on all the measures of a backsliding democracy right now. So we might as well hold up the United States to countries mm. like Myanmar, right? That also saw a coup in right in the early days of 2021. So um, to think of ourselves and hold ourselves up to a standard of Western democracies like France or Germany might not be as appropriate. We might wanna think about ourselves in relationships to other places that are having internal strife that are, well, that are led by fascists and ideologues. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad we, we have the, your expertise here to talk about and frame the, these things because even some of our large health philanthropies like the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation had this commission on health about 10, about a dozen years ago. And one of the big things that they found there was talking to people who are liberal leaning and people who are right leaning. And they found that just what you said, oftentimes people who are right leaning are very, they, they want to celebrate the victory in the moment. And they say, look how far we've gone compared to where we used to be. And they're a little bit more reticent to make changes that can be more inclusive to lead to a, a more inclusive democracy. To and that that trickles down for us in the in, in the world of health and health inequities because there's reticence to do things to in policies like minimum wage or housing and and segregation policies, zoning policies, and things like that. So I think what you're saying it goes to the root mm -hmm. of everything that that we do and that, that somehow we, we still believe that we're further along than we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so true. The, the, I mean, as social scientists, we know that we can't fix anything, right? Policy-wise, <laughs> if we don't have data that informs, right, our systematic mm -hmm. decision-making. And, right, when the federal government refuses to collect data on the number of people killed by guns every year, mm -hmm. there is no way, right, that we can have a health policy or a school educational policy or, right, even a, a like, mental health um, um, kind of resources put into um, trying to help heal those that are dealing with depression and suicide if we don't know the numbers are out there. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, so yeah, that's a definite like one-to-one -one correlation, but we see this in other places too. So United States is not, um, you know, I think we are very particular at how we have our head in the sand, but there are other places that do too, right? Like France, who refuses to take demographic numbers on race. And yeah. because of that, right, they don't acknowledge mm -hmm. racism. Although people of African descent or Arab descent in France are disproportionately also killed by the police, have mm -hmm. lower life expectancy rates, have mm -hmm. lower educational attainment rates and economic mobility, right? The same thing that we're seeing here in the United States. We can point to those things because we keep numbers and we're able to write like be social scientists and and talk about these things. But the root cause of this is both of these countries, right? Both France and the United States 
buying in to this, um, this myth of the founding of the countries as being colorblind mm -hmm. or as being so individualistic that mm -hmm. your chances of living or dying, your chances of living mm -hmm. in a safe neighborhood or an unsafe neighborhood, your chances of sending your children to good schools where they can receive a quality education are solely determined on you, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not impacted by the systemic racism, mm -hmm. sexism, classism, xenophobia, nativity, right? Any of these things. And we just know that's, that's not to be the case. But if we have political leaders, right, that think that pointing to the systemic violence that has been done to um, communities of color or women or queer folks, right? Without, um, and saying that to, to do so, right? Points to a failure of our founding, our founders. And it's mm -hmm. something that's anti-American like we saw in the 1776 project mm -hmm. that we don't even have the tools right. to talk about these things, right? We're not even starting on the same basis of um, to have an informed decision. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we have are people who, um, don't want to acknowledge that all of us are living in a society that we did not create. Mm -hmm. And we're, some are benefiting from the privileges of being white and others are being denigrated from being, you know, living in a society built on white supremacy. And again, we were born into this world without creating these structures. We have to live with them, but we can do so in much more smarter, creative ways that Absolutely. actually tackles the problem. Yeah. And you know, to that point, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about in this podcast is like the stories that we tell ourselves about our country and how so often we find that like the most vulnerable and marginalized still sometimes cling to the stories that like serve them no good. And yet, right in the policies that serve them no good. Um, oh. And, you know, even to draw the parallel to health, right? The story we tell ourselves in this country about health, similar to democracy is like, you know, we have this American exceptionalism in our healthcare system, right? We have the like leading cancer treatments and like we came up with the COVID vaccine and like all of these things. And yet compared to many other major Western industrialized countries, our health metrics are atrocious and abysmal, um, but yet still people cling to the healthcare system as, as they see it these days and say like, you know, don't take away my healthcare. Um, right. So there's certainly that parallel between the politics and the democracy and the political system that we've designed um, that we tell this like American mm -hmm. exceptionalism, amazingness story. We do the same in healthcare and yet the threads, um, you know. And, and what, what is so, um, so baffling to me is seeing, um, right, the Republicans from 2000, uh, almost a decade now, right, trying to repeal um, the American, the Affordable Care Act, or also mm -hmm. known as Obamacare, which gave millions of Americans access to health care. Now, not talking about the quality of the health care, right, because mm -hmm. remember that is still very, very classed and, um, and racialized um, and also gendered but it gives people some access and there are those who are voting against their own interests and the interests of their communities and their families. And so right, my own research on black women state legislators shows that um, like this is, black women are framing this as a human right, right? Healthcare is a human mm -hmm. right. And are talking to constituents who might be opposed with government intervention into healthcare for libertarian reasons, right? And so this is an ideology. This is people that have a strong held belief that government should not interfere or, or overreach into people's day-to-day -day lives. 
And what Black women state legislators have been saying is, okay, so how is this working out, <laughs> right? Like, so right. tell me how your ideology is working out for people in your community. And, um, and not even just the, the people that live in your own families or people that live in your own house or your family, but the larger good, right? And so having this conversation versus an individual versus us or them or me and mine, are really political questions that are played out to bear usually by marginalized people who are saying, yeah, I might have made it, right? Like I might mm -hmm. be middle-class, I might be upper-class, I might have a PhD, but I know my welfare is attached to the kid down the block who has a single parent and who might not know where their next meal is coming from. And because their parent is battling you know, X, Y, or Z, or they are battling X, Y, and Z. And it's really having these kind of collective conversations that pushes people, I think we should hope to push people to think beyond themselves. Yeah, and you mentioned that the Black women let you speak to in your research. And I'm kind of curious about the policymaking process and, and particularly what, what people are fearing right now. Because mm -hmm. um, it seems like, on both sides of the aisle, there's a great reticence to make progressive policies because it's easier to stand in place. Right. And the it seems like, especially with the media. So I know Arisha has a question about um, primarying, but I'm curious about the media. So we know the media is really toxic. Like you mentioned, you can have the same individual go on one network and say one thing and then another totally radically different thing on, on a different network. So um, I know in the promised land, which is probably the extent of my political science knowledge um, <laughs> written by uh, former President Obama, he talks about, he tries to give an analysis of the way the current media landscape is unfolded and particularly right-wing media and kind of pointing to like the closures of all these local newspapers and local news stations. And I'm kind of curious about what your take is. Um, do you think there's any way out of this? Like, do you think there's a way that we can get, as you mentioned before, to uh, accurate information as opposed to these alternative facts or false fake news? Yeah, I, I think, um, right, this goes, I think back to one of the questions Arisha asked, right? politicians need to get above the swirl and they need to have convictions to stand up for what's right and what they know to be true. Um, the difficulty is that there is a segment of the population that has been told a lie over and over and over again and now believe it to be mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. And they don't have the critical um, reflexivity to understand, or they choose not to have the critical reflexivity to understand that they've been lied to and are, mm -hmm. and are perpetuating a lie. And mm -hmm. so I think that's the first thing. And so people, you know, and I disagree with, um, with people's policies, right? But I can say, I can hold up a person like a Mitt Romney who has held to his convictions and to be able to say, like, I'm a deep conservative. I, I'm not with President Biden on these things, but on these very, very fundamental things to the democracy, I'm going mm -hmm. to stand by our country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as opposed to like a Mitch McConnell who agrees with the house managers and why Trump should have been impeached. But then, um, mm -hmm. You know, sacks the deck, right? He doesn't. He doesn't hold the trial when mm -hmm. Trump. When he believed that Trump could have been impeached when he was still in the office, mm -hmm. um, and he quibbles with the language of incitement versus provocation, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, homie, that's semantics. <laughs> but, <laughs> and then, and then, what does this get you, right? Like, what does it? Yeah. President Trump comes out and writes a scathing letter against you. Um, but it's because people don't have the moral courage to stand up and do what's mm-hmm. right. And this is again how democracies backslide, right? When mm-hmm. we saw this, um, you know, in, in other countries in in the 20th century who moved to authoritarian regimes because they were too, political leaders were too afraid to stand up to fascists and were were persuaded by the whims of those that were most vocal. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that most Americans truly deeply are that polarized, that far apart, whether on the right or the left. Mm -hmm. We just hear the most from these groups of people, which makes Mm -hmm. it seem like, you know, there's a culture war at every turn. And because we hear the most, and they're so extreme, right? They, they are just mm-hmm. like, there's a, you know, underground sex ring of people that are killing children. That's mm-hmm. fucking extreme, right? <laughs> and then you have other people, I'm sorry. I it's okay. No, that's fine. right. That's, that's <laughs> the only it word is. for it. <laughs> and then there's another group of people that are, right, some ways so far left that they circle back around to being right. Um, so thinking about folks like, who are making the propagating these arguments about um, we should be doing policies only for the African descendants of slaves in the US, right? That are now trying to push up reparations, mm. but in a way that is talking about racial justice for a very marginalized exclusionary group and then doing so in race baiting and other mm. kind of xenophobic mm. rhetoric. Yep. Like that's that's ridiculous too. And yep. so I'm not saying that the right, you know, owns crazy, the left also has has mm-hmm. a bit of craziness too. But we're yep. hearing from these groups because they're so loud. What we're not paying attention to are those in the middle. And I think that's and Americans have typically more than any other country have been in the middle, right? Like we're not um other countries that have particularly parliaments or multi-system, multi-party systems where there are 15 or seven political parties that are vying for for portions of government control. So what that means is that the Republican Democratic Party really have to be more to the center and trying to incorporate some of the right and some of the left. But what we're seeing now is that the fringes are really driving, right, both parties. in ways that is just untenable and we can't hear each other. So yeah, so it's the media definitely, but it's also how we've uh, come to speak to one another. So I was saying this to um, to my partner who watches a lot of ESPN and when I mm-hmm. walk in and he's listening to it on his phone, like on ESPN, they're just yelling at each other, right? It's <laughs> like, this is the stats. You know, they're just yelling. I'm like, how the hell do you listen to this, right? This is just like, it's noisy. I turn this off. But if you turn on CNN, they've also replicated that, yeah. or Fox News, mm-hmm. people just yelling at you. Mm-hmm. And this is how our political discourse has become, right? Our, as a culture, we are not engaging people, we're not talking, we're not dialoguing, we're not trying to figure out where's the common ground, how can we work together? Um, we're just yelling at people. And unfortunately, right, this is, I mean, I hope to be proven wrong on this, but this is, you know, Joe Biden is really trying to be this pragmatist. I want to work with the Republicans. I want to work with the Democrats without reading the room, right? And I'm like, <laughs> these people on the right are never going to work with them, right? <laughs> Republicans don't actually have a plan for governance. They have a plan mm. for obstruction. Right. They have not put forth or passed policies. What they've done is tried to stack the courts and have um, tried to change American culture. Mm-hmm. Democrats are trying to legislate and work with people, but there's no one on the other end that is actually putting out an olive branch. 
And the president's party usually loses in the midterms, which means that mm -hmm. the Republicans will take over most likely the House and the Senate. They're already too slim of margins. So Biden has two years to push all of these things through. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think he can do it by trying to extend the olive branches right. to either the far right or the far left. What he needs to do is be who he is, which is a moderate, and try to push through common sense policies on things like, you know, making $15 an hour is a good thing for people yeah. that are already living below the poverty line. Yeah. Um, this is not at all an end-all be-all, but it is one step towards advancing equity. Mm -hmm. We should be, yeah, so these are like some common sense things that um, I think unfortunately have become uncommon sense because we're not talking to people. We're just, right. just yelling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The fault of ESPN. So if, if the Biden team is listening to our podcast, Nadia Brown has some thoughts. I'm sure she will accept a consultation fee, you know? <laughs> that's actually, that's really smart though. That's really smart. And I, I feel like there is a whole lot of like kumbaya happening and we're going to like heal the nation, right? And it's like, we need things done, like quite right. frankly. And so I'm interested to see though, and I don't, I haven't followed these things if like, on the like it's a little bit of like song and dance so maybe biden is like i'm gonna do these things and then in the back like you know the the rhetoric of heal the nation let's do things together he's gonna do that for the next few months and then he's like but actually we're gonna get things done i'm really curious to see if he has the political will to do that right like we've seen a i follow immigration stuff I, he has back rolled mm -hmm. a lot of some of the immigration policies from the previous administration quite quietly, but people are paying attention. So I'm curious to see if he kind of continues on that trend, um, you right. know, months. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's it's still, I mean, this is also like a different election to, to follow as a um, Americanist, a political scientist who is right, um, trained in American as a subfield because this is also unlike almost any other election that we've seen. So Biden has already said he's, you know, he might not run for a second, second term. Mm -hmm. He's our oldest president. Um, Kamala Harris is in a precarious position, right? Because usually the vice president would then run. And if she's tied too closely to Biden and people see this as a second term for Biden and they're turned off from these policies that he's trying to push through with pure political force because he has to, because the Republicans aren't going to. What does this mean for her? Mm. And then we know that, if he, and what does this mean for her if he decides not to run? And then we know that people um, already hold biases and um, stereotypes towards women of color, particularly women that identify as Black. Um, so she has a deck, the deck stacked against her, even if um, she were a popular president. If she was serving under a popular president like uh, Barack Obama in his first term. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what's going to happen in the next uh, four years, right? To be honest, this seems like uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. And since you brought up Kamala Harris, I'm wondering if we can pivot a little bit and talk about um, the role of Black women as leaders, as well as like driving in some ways um, this, this past election. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we also noticed is that people have talked a lot about, you know, middle class, breaking class, white folks in this country, and like, what are their needs and what are their priorities? But then this last election, 
um, you know, Black people turned out and Black women in particular and have really fueled many of the wins, um, not only for Biden, but across many of the like local and state seats. Um, so now the Democratic Party, I think, we've, which we've known for a long time, but I'm wondering if political scientists are paying attention to it, if you feel like the Democratic Party is paying attention to this, if they're paying attention to these kind of larger and more large diverse tents that we have built, right? Um, of black women, of brown folks, of immigrants, um, and what insights we can gain from privileging these voices, listening to these, to kind of our constituency, because often I feel like those are the folks who have the brave voices, right? Who like are stepping up to people, like I'll just speak for myself, like it is, the brown, young brown leaders who are like talking to their immigrant parents about like their anti-blackness, right? Or whatever. And so I wonder if that is being paid attention to within the Democratic Party, within political circles, political scientist circles, if you feel like the wind is changing in that regard. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll answer with an cautious optimism. I think that the Democratic Party this term has shown that there is a willingness to listen to um, and really listen to these communities as well as to incorporate them into leadership positions within this big tent of this Democratic Party. Um, and I'll, the example that I'll give is that in 2016 when Hillary Clinton ran, there were so many political operatives and by political science literature and the like saying, you really should have, you know, a diverse, you know, a non-white person be your running mate. Mm -hmm. And her response to this, the Democratic Party response to this, was to go get Senator Kane, uh, you know, a white man from Virginia who speaks Spanish. And they're like, "Yeah, we got that." Oh, <laughs> 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 <No>, you don't. <laughs> and this is what happened. Right? This is not true, authentic outreach, right? Yeah. This is trying to maintain the status quo and just put a little twist on it, right? Um, um, no, like it's it's like diet sprite. It's still soda, <laughs> right? Like how they could be so tone deaf, right? And so this year, um, I think that the Democrats really understood that yes, mainstream voters and particularly Black voters, right, voted for Joe Biden in the primaries because Black voters, by nature of their marginalized position in the United States, have to think about who is someone that will actually win that we believe will do or enact the kind of policies that will be beneficial to us. And um, they might not be all that we want, but they are damn sure better than the alternative. And that was Joe Biden, right? So black folks sent Joe Biden to the White House by giving him uh, the victory during the primaries, particularly when he came to South Carolina. And Joe Biden knew that he had to thank black folks who got him there. But not only just black folks, right? But was also other progressives that, um, that would want to work with a would, would want to work with the moderate, but also wanted to see themselves reflected on the ticket. Now Kamala Harris is in no way a progressive in the same kind of sense as the other people that were running in the primaries, but she checked off two very meaningful demographic boxes, right? So Biden says he's going to nominate a woman, and is recognizing that it's pulling on the uh, the four years in which feminists particularly um, were pushing for women's representation at the top of the ticket. 
the Women's March in 2017 was the largest single day march or protest in the United States history led by women. Um, and so the Democrats knew that they wanted to harness that power. So picking a woman was going to be one of the things. Then we're living through the summer of racial reckoning after the murder of George Floyd and then renewed attention to Breonna Taylor's death. Joe Biden is smart to want to pick a black woman to represent this kind of racial justice um, mm -hmm. initiatives. And um, the, the movement for black lives this summer outpaced any other civil rights mm -hmm. protest that we've seen in our nation's history. And so like thousands of people showed up and sustained, right? Showed up and sustained presence for these Black Lives Matter protests this summer during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. And contrast this to the civil rights movement at the height of the civil rights movement hundreds of people would show up in sustained movements, right, just sustained activism. And we point to like the March on Washington as being like the everyday thing. It really wasn't, right? Mm -hmm. But what we saw in places like Minneapolis in DC and Lexington in Kentucky, right? These were things that were happening over and over and over again with thousands of people showing up. So Biden knew he needed a black woman on his team, right, to mm -hmm. harness this. And then also, right, we get President Trump using these really xenophobic uh, references to the coronavirus as the Kung flu. So picking and then Asian Americans, unfortunately, mm -hmm. still continue to bear the burnt, the burnt of, um, of um, racist attacks, right? So there's just been a spike of people of Asian descent in the United States being assaulted because of their Asian-ness and the connection that President Trump and Republicans tied, you know, it's your fault for bringing this Kung flu here to the United States. Biden picks a woman of South Asian descent, right? Who was also able to speak to this kind of community of, and saying that, um, you know, you're American too. And that you did not, you yourself, right, did not bring us the coronavirus. And it's also like kind of um, echoing back into the United States previous faux pas against Asian Americans, particularly thinking about internment during uh, World War II. So this is a very strategic decision that the Democrats made, which makes me hopeful that they will continue this because they're reading the writing on the wall. Mm. But unfortunately, right, they have for so long made so many mistakes in this area. And my hope is that they see the energy that, you know, like for better or worse, right, that Kamala Harris brought to the ticket the interest in HBCUs, the interest in black sororities and fraternities, um, really the, this lifeline of um, middle-class blackness, right? That's the people that are actually um, also going out to vote that's reliable, as opposed to thinking about like the grassroots active, the grassroots um, folks that were activated through people like Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown, who parties just weren't expecting to turn out to vote, right? Because when people don't, um, when communities don't turn out to vote, parties just ignore them because right. they don't, know how they're going to, to behave politically. So why would they activate a group of people or communities that they don't know who are gonna vote because they might vote for their opponent. And so um, so parties don't have any interest in doing the work that we saw that happened with Fair Fight in Georgia or Black Voters Matter. Um, and so I think the Democrats are still thinking about how to harness this and, um, and the route that Republicans are going is this very, um, uh, I don't want to use that word. They're, they're just they're using these rallies to to reach people and to kind of inundate them with their own messaging. And that's different than mobilizing people based on shared policy interests or goals. Um, the kind of rallies that are motivating Republicans are rallies that are based on fear and grievance and kind of a displacement of your proper place in American society. Um, 
both are very, very powerful. And I think what matters is what will turn out at the end of the day. And like you're right, Arisha, it is black and brown youth leaders or folks that are millennials, um, Gen Zs that are the largest generation and people that are thinking about politics differently, right? So Republicans in this millennial Gen Z group care about green jobs. They care about climate change, not in the same way as mm -hmm. Democrats, right? But climate change is a thing for them. And we're not seeing Republicans talk about climate change in the same way. So it's really gonna be this demographic group on both sides of the aisle that are pushing 21st century problems and hopefully, hopefully parties will respond um, in ways that are much more reactive to what constituents want. That um, was such and, a thoughtful analysis. Uh, exactly, like, right, yeah. You like tied yeah. it all together. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I am learning things here, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to go to like a cocktail party when like life is back and be like, let me tell you about exactly. Mala, okay? <laughs> in six months, day, in yeah. six months or whatever, right. yeah. <laughs> So can we talk a little bit more about like where you see the GOP going, like kind of riffing mm. on what you just said? So, yeah. you know, like you said, they're building not, um, you know, any sort of like kind of uh, group based on actual like kind of policy, but rather, like you said, just on like kind of fear and grievances and whatnot. Um, but you're already, I don't know, as somebody that just watches the news, um, it seems like that's already splintering, right? Because like they can't really kind of like build consensus around um, things like white supremacy or kind of aliens invading government or whatever they believe in now uh, for a sustained period of time, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, I'm curious about where you think they're going to go next, right? Like, what's going to happen to the GOP party? Are they going to pivot away from this or just are they going to be new kind of factions that splinter off or are they just going to go away? I don't know. Yeah, so I think in the interim, we're going to see two parties. We're going to see people who have conservative um, moral and fiscal beliefs that will hold on to kind of traditional republicanism. And unfortunately, they're having a hard fight for mm -hmm. the soul of the party. They might break off and become a new party. Or the those that are um, kind of beholden to Trump are definitely the power base, right? This is, mm -hmm. this is, not just the power base for elected officials, but this is the power base for voters. Um, and that's, I, I would have answered this differently um, prior to last week, right? Prior to the, to the vote mm. um, in, in the Senate not to acquit Trump. And what it showed was that, I mean, I think prior to the vote, we thought that they were just these extremists like Trump and Holly um, and the rest of the party as, and as, as senators, right, senators who were charged not to be, like the, so the, the founders set up the House of Republicans to be really responsive to people's needs, right, and to be the people's house. And the Senate is set up to be this elite branch that um, doesn't, is actually assuaged by the public's whims, and they are actually more elitist and learned and will come in and kind of use logic um, to discern how to govern. So I thought that we would see people like Trump and Holly be outliers and then um, Republicans pretty much having an open mind to uh, the, the rationale that the House managers put before them. And we didn't see that at all, right? We, we didn't see it. And so which makes me think that um, the reason why it's because they're hearing from their base, right? And their base is saying, how dare you um, go against Trump? 
Marjorie Taylor Greene's after she was censored, right, stood up and said it's Trump's party. It doesn't belong to anyone but him. And I thought, oh, she's ridiculous for a lot of other reasons. <laughs> she's but she's actually right here, right? She's actually right. When the seven senators who voted against Trump, the majority of them saw censorship from their own party. Mm -hmm. And that's because their base has said, you cannot stand against Trump. And so they've tapped into a deep-seated animus that has been undercover in United States politics for decades, right? This is really a reinsurgence of what we saw after the uh, Civil War and this big lie that we told ourselves then and during Reconstruction was that we were a multiracial democracy and that we could figure out ways to govern together. And instead, what we did was prop up white supremacists and what we're doing now is the same thing, right? So there are clauses in the Constitution, particularly in the 14th Amendment, that would give um, you know, Congress the power to unseat people who were treasonous and you know, engaged in seditious activities. We haven't done any of that. Mm -hmm. um, right? our, there are ways in our Constitution that you know, still don't call out white supremacy by name, but are trying to get at some of the heart of why people have rebelled against our country. And it's mm -hmm. based on these racial inequalities. We haven't seen that happen. And I think that's a, a signal for us to say, yeah, like we are living in, you know, 2021 could look a lot like, you know, 1871, 1876. So, um, so politicians who gave way to the end of reconstruction are probably what we're seeing here with the Republican split, right? We're probably seeing these, these people that are principled in terms, right? Like a Mitt Romney, a Susan Collins, um, who are will eventually acquiesce the same way the radical Republicans did in the late 1880s, early 1890s, um, and just let like the whims of um, really a fascist, anti-American group of um, elected officials take over. Yeah, so I'm glad you brought that up. And there's there's a lot as as we keep on asking you questions, you keep on giving us so much <laughs> great information. We can go on to talk forever, but we probably only have time for a couple more questions. And um, I guess one thing that I, I'm curious about that that's building off just what you said is what happened on January 6th? Like, is this like a grievance thing that you mentioned? Is this backlash? Is this undercurrent? Like I know you mentioned before, like for some people, this was shocking for other people's like, this is a rotten line was always been there just beneath the surface. So what's your like political analysis of the current times? Yeah. Yeah. So anyone who is studying marginalized populations and political science said that this was always happening, right? This was, we, we could have pinpointed this would have happened, um, which is a, you know, side note, like higher political scientists of color, higher women. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, we are the ones who are, are studying these communities, have relationships with these communities, who are feeling the undercurrents of this, right? They are, they are the canaries in the mine. Um, and unfortunately, mainstream political scientists looked up on January 6th and were saying, oh, the protesters, the protesters. And they're like, no, these are rioters who are leading a treasonous um, attempt to overthrow a duly elected uh, presidency, right? To having, having the counts, uh, electoral college counts voted. And we all believed, um, I think, particularly those that study American politics, that um, our setup of democracy wouldn't fail us, that there were cracks in the system, but we believed that 
all of the stop gaps would work, but there were warning signs all along the way, right? Mitch McConnell takes almost a month to, to agree that um, Joe Biden is president. Mm -hmm. There are over 60 lawsuits and um, challenges in courts to have the votes overturned. President Trump is caught on tape, right? Talking to secretaries of state, getting them to try to overturn their electoral college results. Um, and we laughed this off, right? And we said that, you know, we, we enabled, right? The Republicans and Democrats, right? Said that, yeah, this is part of the due process. This is how things normally work. But, right, there is room in the constitution for us to challenge these things. So we saw, we should have seen this coming all along with the concessions that we were making to people to contribute to this big lie that Trump mm -hmm. actually won the presidency. And then what we saw on January 6th was, right, such highs and such lows. So we get, um, you know, Raphael Warnock, um, mm -hmm. you know, elected that morning, the first black person to represent Georgia since reconstruction. Uh, John Ossoff, the first Jewish person to represent Georgia in the state, in the Senate. Um, mm. Right, so we're, we're on that high in the morning, right? Thinking mm -hmm. about the, the growth of democracy. And then a couple hours later, we have people that are literally storming the state house, star, I'm sorry, storming the legislature and screaming they wanna kill Mike Pence, right? A duly elected Republican for not upholding the wishes of their president. We could have seen this all along. Um, and particularly because these groups were carrying white supremacist um, you know, symbols, anti-Semitic slogans on shirts. This is the time that for, you know, for one of the first times ever that the Confederate flag breaches and comes and is hung inside of the state capitol, not even during the Civil War did this mm -hmm. happen. And the, the president doesn't want to call this out, right? Instead has been canoodling with the Proud Boys and other white supremacists, enabling them and mainstream culture, trying to see their side as um, people who are economically grieved, people right. that are just looking for an out um, because the system has failed them without turning to say, what about the 80 some million people who voted for Joe Biden and repudiated these claims? Instead, we turn to the minority and say, well, there were 74 million people who voted for Trump. We should be caring about them that lost. When what we've seen is that the trampling of minority rights has, um, has just been eroded away at this country so much so that we didn't even stop and ask, what about the actual minorities, right? Mm -hmm. What about the legislators themselves who are people of color from marginalized backgrounds that have to sit with knowing that their colleagues across the aisle from them or literally in the seat next to them held up white supremacy, right? Explained away, like that is a hostile, hostile environment that we still haven't talked about. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I think, you know, again, what we, what we need to make of this day is that this was a treasonous act. And what we're trying to paint this as is people exercising their first amendment right no, this is not your First Amendment right. What you tried to do was overthrow the government. This was a coup and should be should be said as such. But when this are, when these are white people that are doing this, when they are painted as upstanding citizens, they're the doctors in the community, the teachers, these are the small business owners. But when you paint people who are protesting to stop being killed in the streets like dogs, black people um, that are peacefully saying, recognize my humanity they are being, um, having tear gas thrown on them, have dogs sicked on them, police officers who are, you know, treating their bodies like they are less than human. The two don't square. And what it is, is reminding us that white supremacy rules the day in the United yeah. States, right? White is still right. And um, I'm sorry for being so long-winded, I'll shut up. No, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, this yeah. is absolutely great. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, um, 
But on, on that note, we should probably start to try and wrap up a little bit. Um, and so uh, I want to get to this um, because we're all pretty excited about it. But uh, we heard that you have a new book that's uh, out. And so can you tell us a little bit more about um, like what that is? Yeah. So my book is called Sister Style, The Politics of Appearance for Black Women Political Elites. And um, it's co-authored co with Daniel Lemmy, who wrote the last two chapters of the book. She is a, um, a methods whiz kid who could do all fancy things with numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an interpretivist, a qualitative researcher. I talk to people. But basically what, what we argue in this book is that Black women experience politics differently because of what mm. they look like. And it's mostly embodied in their hair and skin tone. And so doing a deep dive into intersectionality helps us to see that not all Black women experience politics the same way. And one of the ways that we can recognize this is by hair and skin tone. And so take, for example, the receptions that Stacey Abrams gets and Kamala Harris gets, right? right. Um, Stacey Abrams famously went on The Breakfast Club, a syndicated urban talk show. Uh, when she was running for governor in 2018 and said that people don't think she's viable. She doesn't have a husband. She's dark skin, um, right? She's heavy set, natural hair. And no one was like, no, nah, girl, no, not you, right? Everyone was like, yeah, we see this. And then Kamala Harris, right, kind of famously, um, like Barack Obama calls her the most attractive state's attorney general. And feminists wow. pushed back against this um, <laughs> in 2013 and said, you know, Obama, you know, that's so wrong. She is a qualified member. She's passed the bar. She's able to, um, you know, do this job well. And he agrees. And he says, I'm sorry for calling you attractive. And no one then said, no, she's not attractive, <laughs> right? Uh -huh. Like that part was never part of the conversation. And so those are just two examples of how women are, um, treated or talked about in American politics, who are Black women who would be seen in larger discourses as the same. But because of how they look, they are given different receptions. And they, and what I argue in this book is that Black women politicians know this. Hmm. So they decide whether they're going to straighten their hair. They decide if they're going to appear with an Afro or twist outs. Um, if they're going to wear a wig or a weave. Uh, they try, we know that voters think about how they'll vote if they were to elect a darker skinned black woman. They think of her as much more Afrocentric and pushing kind of mm. uh, more liberal politics or policies. And this is oftentimes implicated by if she's darker skinned with natural hair. Mm -hmm. um, and then all natural hair is not the same, having locks mm -hmm. um, or having right, a twist out. Are, are seen as different. And so what I want to do in this, in this book is showcase some of these everyday conversations that black women are having about their appearance, connecting it to their political chances, and then also giving agency to black women to speak back, right? And just not allowing the dominant discourse to say, um, you should do X without critically thinking how black women are navigating them. And this is done in mind with how they are winning or thinking about representing black constituents, as well as how black constituents are thinking about how they're being read by white constituents. Mm. And so, right, it's a very, very complicated notion that all comes down to a cultural bias in America for natural hair, against natural hair, sorry, not for it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brown, and uh, for imparting so many different wisdoms with us today and yeah. it really is a, a treat to talk to someone with a, a political science background to really help us to understand this political moment that we're all going through and like you said it's been a lot over the last year it feels like it's been 
certainly longer than that. It feels like for five years. Uh, And it's a very short period of time. So we really appreciate you for coming and sharing your time and providing your analysis. And uh, really excited to to take a look at your book. And thank you all to the listeners for joining us today for another episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations. And we'll see you next time. Okay, thanks for having me. Bye, thanks. Bye.